The following message is a teaching by Dr. Jason DeRoshi, professor of Old Testament and Biblical Theology at Bethlehem College and Seminary in Minneapolis, Minnesota. You can find more information about Jason at www.jasonderoshi.com. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we enter in once again, asking for your help. I want to teach as if speaking the very oracles of God serve in the strength you supply, so that in all things Christ may be praised. Thank you for these brothers and sisters who've come out this extra week. Thank you for their love for this pastor and for the deep, deep love you've given me and my bride for them. Thank you that you go before us and that you will never leave us or forsake us. We praise you that you've given us 66 books, not just 27. Thank you for a whole Bible, Old and New Testaments, Meet us now as we look once again into how to study and apply your word. Through Christ we pray, amen. All right. So we are in week 13. The... Twelfth chapter in How to Understand and Apply the Old Testament, Twelve Steps from Exegesis to Theology, and we have taken this journey. Part one was text, and we asked the question, what is the makeup of the passage? We considered genre, literary units and text hierarchy, text criticism, and translation. Next, we went to observation, T-O. Observation, how's the passage communicated? So we looked at that dreaded concept of grammar, argument tracing, and word and concept studies. Then we went to context. Where does the passage fit? Considering both the historical context and literary context. Part four, what does the passage mean? Biblical theology and systematic theology. And now this week, right at the end, we have part five, application practical theology. So, nine steps devoted to exegesis, three steps focused on theology, biblical, systematic, practical. So, what's at stake here today is what are Christians to do with the Old Testament? We know that it's part of our Christian Bible, So how do we practically engage it? What questions should we be asking, not in the interpretive side, but in the application side? Because it's loaded with a covenant that is not ours. The old covenant, we're part of the new. And so all I can do is just scratch the surface of what's in my last chapter. I do in my last chapter have an extended section on how do we meet Jesus Specifically, how do we find Jesus in the Old Testament? An extended discussion of the law. All of Moses' law, what are we to do with that, knowing that some things have been 
transformed. Some things have been annulled. Some things have been extended and other things seem to be maintained. So how do we think about the law? And then I've got an extended discussion of promises. And my hope in that discussion is to give back to Christians three-fourths of the Bible's promises, yet to understand how to do that faithfully through Jesus. So today I want to consider, should we even be thinking about applying the Old Testament to Christians? And then some guidelines of what I'm thinking about and what I would encourage you to be thinking about as you're asking the question of application. So with respect to practical theology, our goal is apply the text to yourself, the church, and the world, and do so in a way that stresses the centrality of Christ and the hope of the gospel. So I see Jesus from Genesis to Malachi, or in Jesus' Bible, Genesis to Chronicles. He's anticipated there. And Paul said, I am an apostle of Jesus Christ, set apart for the gospel of God, a gospel that finds its source in God, that was promised beforehand by the prophets in the sacred writings concerning the Son. So the the gospel of God was promised, anticipated, foreshadowed, by the prophets, in the sacred writings, that is, in Paul's Bible, the Old Testament. And it concerned the Son, Jesus. So, that's where we're heading. Number one. Number one, I have a very large stack of handouts to pass out. Yeah, that'd be great. Thank you. Here you go, bro. All right. God gave the Old Testament to instruct Christians. Not just Moses giving it to his audience, Isaiah speaking in the 8th century, or Zechariah way down in the 500s. No, even to us, in the 21st century, the Old Testament has a word, and I want to reflect on that a little bit. First of all, some New Testament reflections on the made audience of Old Testament instruction. You got that? New Testament reflections on who the Old Testament was written for. Number one, whatever was written in former times was written for us, Paul says. It was written for our instruction in order that we might see endurance created in our soul. Endurance, and that through the encouragement of the Scriptures, we could find hope. Paul's convinced that God wants Christians to have hope in the midst of this broken and hard world, to have enduring faith, and he believes it's going to arise out of the initial three-fourths of the Bible. That was all of Paul's Bible. Whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction. He says to the Corinthians... All that happened to Israel, specifically in the wilderness wanderings, was written, it it happened to them as an example for us. They were written down for our instruction upon whom the end of the ages has come. So Paul's convinced these weren't just written for them, they were written for us. 
And this is why he can say to Timothy, who grew up with a Jewish mom and a Jewish grandma, says 2 Timothy 1.5, Acts 16.1. His, his mom was Jewish, his dad was a Gentile. But in 2 Timothy 1.5, we learn it was his grandma and his mother who were shaping his worldview, instructing him in the Word. And so Paul says, Tim, from childhood, you've been acquainted with the sacred writings. That's his Bible. That is the Jewish Scriptures. You've been acquainted with the sacred writings that are able to make you wise for salvation through Jesus. Through faith in Christ. So when faith in Jesus, this receiving of all that God has for us, this treasuring of who Christ is, when we enter into a relationship with God by faith, one of the means that can get us there is Jesus' Bible. The first three-fourths of this book the Old Testament. It was able to make Timothy wise for salvation through faith in Christ. For all Scripture is God-breathed. And when he says that, he's not thinking principally of Revelation. He's not even thinking principally of Timothy. Or Romans. Or of Mark. He's thinking of the sacred writings that Timothy grew up on as a Jewish boy. All Scripture is useful for Christians for teaching, rebuking, correcting, training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. The Old Testament matters for believers. Finally, here's Peter. Concerning the salvation that you and I are enjoying, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours... How desperately the world needed saving grace. And it enters in in the person of Jesus. The prophets of the Old Testament prophesied about this saving grace that was to be yours. But what were they doing? They were searching and inquiring carefully, inquiring to know what person and time the Spirit of Christ in them was foretelling the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but us. These prophets of the Old Testament were writing about the salvation that you and I are enjoying, and they understood something as they, as they sought and as they inquired about the person of Jesus and about the time of Jesus, about his, the time of His coming. They knew something about both. They knew something about his character, his work, his identity, and they knew something about when he would appear. But they also knew that when they wrote this book, they were writing not for themselves, but for us, upon whom the end of the ages has come. The Old Testament, from the New Testament perspective, was written for us. And so we need to know how to apply it rightly for teaching, rebuking, correcting, that we as believers can actually open up our Old Testament and correct people and get them back on the right path. But we have to be careful because it's not our covenant. So we need to keep Jesus at the center of our Old Testament interpretation. So how about some Old Testament reflections on the made audience of Old Testament instruction? We've got the perspective from the New Testament guys. Well, did the Old Testament guys, I mean, it says it was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves but us. 
is that, do we see such a thing in the Old Testament? We'll consider a few texts. How about Moses? Here's Moses talking about his audience. No, O Israel, God's about to lead you into the land. Know that the Lord your God is not giving you this good land to possess because you're right with Him. You have zero righteousness. No, it's because of the wickedness of these nations that God is giving you this land. Indeed, you're a stubborn people. From the day you came out of the land of Egypt... So today's sermon was right at the front end of that. In Exodus chapter 4, then 40 years go by... And then Moses is preaching Deuteronomy. During that 40-year window, he says, from the day that you came out of the land until you came to this place, you have been rebellious against the Lord. So that's his audience, a stubborn audience, a rebellious audience. Why? Moses summoned all Israel. He said to them, you've seen all that the Lord did before your eyes in the land of Egypt. Like those three signs that we heard about in the sermon today. The serpent, the leprosy, the water to blood. And then add onto that nine more plagues. Because the water to blood was the first plague. Add onto that nine more plagues given to Egypt. All of them witnessed. Oh, the power of Yahweh. Pharaoh's question, who is Yahweh that I should obey him? Who is he? And so God says, I'll tell you, ten different ways. And he unpacks the character of God through this magnificent display. You have seen all that the Lord did before your eyes in the land of Egypt to Pharaoh and to all of his servants and to his land. You know the great trials that your eyes saw, the signs, the great wonders. And yet, though you've had physical sight, You have not been awakened internally. God has not given you a heart to know, or eyes to see, or ears to hear. Israel was ignorant, blind, and spiritually deaf. And the amazing thing is that they couldn't change it. They wanted to be resistant, and they would keep being resistant. They were already dead in their trespasses and sins. And dead people have no senses spiritually. It would take an intrusion of the one who said, let light shine into the darkness to awaken something new in their hearts. But for Moses' audience, he gives them Deuteronomy, he preaches his sermons, and They're deaf to the Word. They cannot see the beauty of the glory of God that's being displayed in front of them. Oh, they see things physically, but it's not reaching their hearts. It would take a miracle. And within the context of this book, it says that miracle will not come until after they've entered the land, after they've been kicked out of the land, until after they re-enter the land, And then God does something inside of them. For the majority of the people, 
They would remain hard-hearted and far from God until the day, Moses says, when God would enter in and do a heart surgery. I will circumcise your heart so that you will love me with all your heart and with all your soul. Indeed, you will return and obey the voice of the Lord. That word obey is the exact same word for hearing. He hasn't given you ears to hear. But in this day, you will hear the voice of the living God, and you will, in that day, when hearts get changed, and you're empowered to love, it doesn't say it'll happen perfectly overnight, but truly, it will happen. They'll be empowered to love, and in that day, Deuteronomy is going to matter. The Old Testament is going to matter in that day. Notice what he says, You shall again obey the voice of the Lord, keep all of his commandments that I'm commanding you today. In whatever day your hearts get circumcised, that hostile shell of the flesh which identifies you with the world, in that day when the heart gets changed... All of a sudden, the Old Testament is going to matter. But for my present audience, they have neither ears to hear or eyes to see. Now, Paul, in Romans chapter 2, is simply going to say, a Jew is not one outwardly. No, to be a true Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the Spirit, not by the letter. And he's talking to the church. He's seeing Deuteronomy 30 being fulfilled in the church. And in that day, Deuteronomy will matter, says Moses. How about Isaiah? Oh, one more thing. One thing associated with this time period. Pastor Stephen mentioned it this morning. The Lord will raise up for you a prophet like me, says Moses, from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. And I think the Hebrew is actually better read, to him you will listen. When the prophet, who's better than Moses, mediating a new covenant, rises, it's in that day that you'll have ears and you'll heed teaching. He's going to mediate a new covenant. That's the day that we're living in. The prophet has come. Isaiah. Here's Isaiah's audience. Astonish yourselves and be astonished. Blind yourselves and be blind. The Lord has poured out upon you a spirit of deep sleep and closed your eyes. He's covered your heads, and the vision of all that I am giving you in this big book, called Isaiah, we spent two and a half years walking through high points, in that entire book, the vision that I've been declaring to you is coming to you like the words of a book that is sealed, so that when men give it to one who can even read, and he says, read this, he says, I can't, because when I look at Isaiah, it's sealed. For Isaiah's audience, Isaiah's message was principally closed to them. Oh, they could read the words on the page. 
but to have an encounter with the glory that he was talking about. To have an encounter that would awaken the awareness of their own sinfulness to the point where they're willing to fall on their knees and repent and turn from evil and do good. That was foreign to them. It was as if his book were sealed, but just a few verses later, Isaiah promises this. In that future day, after judgment has been poured out, in that future day, the deaf shall hear the words of a book, and out of their gloom and darkness, the eyes of the blind will see. What did Jesus come to do? Give sight to the blind and to awaken ears. Very next chapter. And now, Isaiah, go write it down before them on a tablet. Inscribe it in a scroll. Notice why. That it may be for the time to come as a witness forever. What's his book written for? Principally not for his generation. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves but us. Isaiah matters for the church. And so we need to understand how to apply it. How about Jeremiah? Something very similar. Jeremiah is told by the Lord, write it down in a book. All the words that I've spoken to you, why? Because your present generation needs to have record. No. Write it down in a book. Give us Jeremiah. Why? Because days are coming when I'll restore, that is, the fortunes have been removed through exile, and it's that restoration community that's been transformed internally that's going to need the book that's written by Jeremiah. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I'll restore the fortunes of my people Israel and Judah, and I'll bring them back to the land that I gave their fathers, and they shall take possession of it. Even Jeremiah himself didn't fully understand all that God was declaring to him about the person and the time of these sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. Notice what it says at the end of the chapter. I'm going to pour out judgment on the nation of Israel. The fierce anger of the Lord will not turn back until he has executed and accomplished the intentions of his mind. In the latter days, you'll understand. When will understanding come? In the latter days. The early Christians at Pentecost have the Spirit of God poured out upon them. They become witnesses of Jesus. It starts in Jerusalem at Pentecost, moves on to Judea, Samaria, even to the ends of the earth in the book of Acts. But in that moment, when the Spirit comes, and they begin to speak in other tongues, and all these people from all over the world begin to hear in their own language the glories of Jesus being displayed, being declared. What does Peter say? Oh, this is what Joel said would happen in the latter days. That's when people will understand. That's when Jeremiah will be understood. Because you're going to be given a lens. It's not that the words in Jeremiah are going to change, but now you're going to understand that to which they point. And once you arrive at the end, 
and you read the last chapter, and all the clues have now been disclosed. The mystery is now revealed. All of a sudden, you can never go back and read the story the same way again. Never. It's what a detective story is. It's a double narrative. Wherein you read it the first time, and there's all kinds of things happening that you don't even know. I mean, you're reading the words, you're seeing the characters, the clues are all there, but you don't have eyes to see. And all of a sudden, everything is disclosed at the end, and all of a sudden, the second level narrative trumps the first, and you can never read the story the same way again. You're seeing all these interconnections, and you're seeing now, understanding where it's pointing to. And all of a sudden, the details matter more. And it begins to change us and shape us increasingly into the likeness of the one to whom it was all about. Now notice how it's worded here. In the latter days, you'll understand this. Now there's a chapter break, but I wish there wasn't a chapter break right there. Because when the next chapter begins at that time, we might miss the fact that what time is it? It's the days of understanding. When are the days of understanding? We know it's after the judgment, according to the early part of the verse. But then 31.1 says, At that time, in the days of understanding, I will be the God of all the clans of Israel and they shall be my people. That's what's going to happen, a reconstitution of relationship. Now what's significant about that is just a few paragraphs later is where we get in the Old Testament the one statement, New Covenant. And how does it describe the New Covenant? This is the covenant that I'll make with the house of Israel after those days. I'll put my law within them. I'll write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. When are the days of understanding? When are the days for which Jeremiah's book was written? The days when the relationship between God and His people are reconstituted. That is, the days of the New Covenant. The Old Testament was written for Christians. That's what I'm trying to identify here. Brother Bill. Oh, you're talking about how is it that we go to a text like Jeremiah when it says, I'll make a covenant with the house of Israel and apply it to the church. We can, when I'm, if I'm talking to a Jew, my jumping to the New Testament, the book of Hebrews, and showing how it applies it to the church, that won't work. So the first step is to start with Jeremiah itself. And I could go to, if you want to write down a few verses, I can give you a list I would start in Jeremiah chapter 3, Jeremiah three sixteen through 18, and I would identify how in Jerusalem, at the end of the age, in the latter days, what's going to happen? A multi-ethnic people, the nations and ethnic people from Israel and Judah are going to gather with, cha- with transformed hearts in Jerusalem. Then I'd go to chapter... 12, verses 16 through 18. And I'd identify that God's once evil neighbors, 
who actually exiled Judah, God says, if in that future day, behold, the days are coming, if in that future day they will learn the ways of my people, then I will build them up into the midst of my people. That is, the people of God there are defined as including not only ethnic followers of God who listen to God's voice, but once enemy neighbors. Then I would go to chapter 30, and I'd go to verses 8 and 9. In chapter 30, verses 8 and 9, it, this is all within Jeremiah itself, leading up to our understanding of who is the people of God, who is Israel. So in chapter 30, God says in Jeremiah, It shall come to pass in that day, that is the day that Jacob is saved, that's the previous verse, saved out of judgment. It'll come to pass in that day that I'll break the yoke of Nebuchadnezzar, the Babylonian king, I'll break his yoke from off the neck of my people, and I'll burst your bonds, and foreigners shall no more, and then I have to follow the ESV footnote, because I think that translation they gave is very unhelpful. Foreigners shall no more serve with Nebuchadnezzar. They didn't ever make a servant of Nebuchadnezzar. They serve with him. Foreigners, that is non-ethnic Israelites, will no longer serve Babylon. Instead, it says, they shall serve Yahweh their God and David their king. All of a sudden, the foreigners are serving David their king. But as for you, O Jacob, my servant, declares the Lord, don't be dismayed because I'll put a full end to all the nations. So the foreigners are not considered part of the nations. They're instead considered part of the people of God that are serving David. All the nations, the enemies of God, are destroyed, and yet there's foreigners and there's ethnic Israelites. Chapter 12 says those foreigners will be built up into the midst of God's people. That is, Israel's going to be reconstituted to include a multi-ethnic community. Yet all of them together will be serving one king, and his name will be David, the new David. That is Jesus. And that progression in the book leads us then to chapter 30, um, 31, And so when it says God's going to make a new covenant with the house of Israel, and when elsewhere, for example, in Jeremiah 24, it says that that covenant with them is going to be underneath King David, it suggests that it's all, that the the same covenant includes these newly identified foreigners who've gained new birth certificates in some way, new identities. Within Jeremiah, that's where I would start. Then you could go back to our study in Isaiah, and see all of the texts that show that once you get to the ultimate offspring, Jesus, there is only a people of God growing out of Him that is so by faith. They have to have an identification with Jesus. And so it'll be ethnic Jews identified with with the servant king and those from the nations identified with the servant king. And only if you have an identification with him are you considered the people of God. 
And you can be among the nations and not have ears to hear, or you can be among ethnic Israelites and not have ears to hear and not be considered the people, the true people of God. Last text, Daniel. What does the Old Testament have to say about its primary audience? Daniel, in his entire book, 12 chapters, a number of times it identifies that he understands the visions and the dreams. He understands what God's telling him about the future through these imagery, uh, depictions. But now we come to chapter 12. Notice how it's worded. You, Daniel, shut up the words and seal it in a book. That's Daniel. We have Daniel. I've told you vision after vision. Now put it into a book so that people can read it. Seal it, though, it says, sounding like Isaiah. Seal it up in a book till when? It will remain sealed until the time of the end. Many in that day will run to and fro, and in that day, the time of the end, knowledge is going to begin to increase. Well, I heard, but I didn't understand. This is after a he taught a, a, an, a messenger of God talks about times, times, and half a times. You know, Daniel's weird talk. And Daniel says, I heard, but I didn't understand. And when I hear him say that, I'm comforted. <laughs> and then I said, oh, Lord, so tell me, what shall be the outcome of all these things? Seal it in a book until the time of the end. Wait, I don't understand. Go your way, Daniel, for the words are shut up and sealed until the time of the end. In that day, many will purify themselves and make themselves white and refined, but the wicked, no, they will act wickedly. None of the wicked shall understand, but those who are wise in that day will understand more than you understand right now. It's in the book. So now we consider New Covenant, Days of the Messiah, understanding. Jesus enters into the world. What's been given is the Old Testament. And this is what we read. Number one, we see a lot of evidence of Israel's inability, even in Jesus' day, to understand what was in the book. They, Jesus is right in front of them. He's proclaiming the kingdom of God the realization of all anticipation, and they're saying, I don't get it. The disciples don't get it, and the Pharisees don't get it. The disciples are even getting greater disclosures. But remember in the Gospel of Mark, it's like the blind man. There's two blind men healed in the Gospel of Mark. The first one is given partial, not immediate, healing. Remember, Jesus comes and he begins to heal the man, and the man says, I see people walking around, but they look like trees. And then God heals him, Jesus heals him wholly. It's a parable. Because immediately, Peter makes the profession, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. 
And the very next story, so it goes the blind man, Peter's profession, the very next story, Jesus is saying, get behind me, Satan, to Peter. Because Peter's saying, don't go to Jerusalem and be killed. He understands partially, but he doesn't understand fully. And then as Jesus, in his journey to Jerusalem, gets closer and closer, the idea is something's going to happen in Jerusalem that's going to bring light where there was no light, that's going to provide a lens for seeing clearly rather than with blurriness. And he gets to Jericho and he heals Bartimaeus immediately. Jerusalem, he's right on the cusp of Jerusalem. And then he gets there, and it's at that moment when, he's ris- when he rises from the grave that things begin to change. So here's, here's what we read. This is to the Pharisees. You search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. It's they that bear witness about me, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. I'm in the book. I've been foretold. It's giving clarity to my person and my work, yet you're far from me. Israel, the majority, failed to obtain what it was seeking. There was a a remnant, and they got it. At least in part, they got it. But in part, Jeremiah in part, Daniel in part, but they had light that that saved their souls, and they, they could be among those who saw my day and rejoiced and were glad. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. As it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see, ears that would not hear down to this very day. Their minds were hardened. For to this day, when they read the Old Covenant... That's what's disclosed in the Old Testament materials. Testament, covenant. Testament is Latin for covenant. That's why they called the initial three-fourths of the Bible that. When they read the Old Covenant materials, a veil remains over their eyes. Why? Because only through Christ is it taken away. Christ becomes the lens for properly understanding and with that applying the Old Testament. Jesus' person and work reveals the mystery. What did he say to his disciples? To you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God. But for those outside, everything is in parables. Parables without interpretation are judgment. It's like the vision of a statue without interpretation. It's judgment. Daniel chapter 2. Why did God bring judgment? Well, he quotes Isaiah chapter 6, that they may indeed see but not perceive, that they may indeed hear but not understand, lest they should turn and be forgiven. Sin is not only worthy of judgment, sin is judgment. And Israel's blindness and deafness was part of their curse. Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery. Now what the ESV translates as mystery here is the same exact word that it translated as secret in Mark chapter 4. 
It draw, it's drawn directly out of Daniel chapter 2, where Nebuchadnezzar's statue dream is called a mystery, and God is the reveal of, revealer of mysteries. And Daniel understood. But then at the end of the book, he didn't understand. But now, the end of the time has come, and God is disclosing the mystery. And he's disclosing it to his disciples. Notice what he says. Through my gospel, the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but has been now disclosed and through the prophetic writings is made known. Those prophetic writings are Isaiah, Jeremiah. That's where the mystery is disclosed to us, but only in the light of the end of the story. So like a detective novel, now you're able to go back and read it with fresh eyes. And you're able to gain clarity as to what parts of it apply to us and what parts don't. Because Jesus has come. You can distinguish the shadows from the substance. The pictures from the reality. And begin to gain clarity about how it all matters for us. It does, doesn't it? To be awed by a God who was orchestrating all of this from the beginning. The beginning. Even before the beginning. Before the foundation of the world. Right? So the Jews said, Jesus, it's taken 42 years to build this temple, and you say you're going to raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. The very radiance of the image of God now embodied in a person. So that the very presence of God dwelt in, through, of Him. Now notice what it says. When therefore He had raised from the dead, His disciples remembered that He said this, and they believed the Scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. It took the resurrection. So they took branches of palm trees. They went out to meet him, crying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. Jesus found a young donkey. He sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king's coming to you, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples didn't understand all this at first. But when Jesus was glorified after his resurrection, then they remembered these things, how they had been written about him and had been done to him. All of a sudden, it clicked what all those details were about. The Old Testament mattered more to them after the resurrection than it ever did before the resurrection. And it should have for us as well. Is that a qualifier? Are not all prophets uh, alluding to the grace that's to be yours? Is that, does that narrow it to just certain prophets? When we read 
in Acts chapter 3, verse 18, all the prophets proclaimed the sufferings of Christ. All of them. So I, it, I'm, when we're just in Peter, it's not as clear whether it's some of them or all of them. But when Peter is talking in Acts chapter 3, same author, Acts chapter 3, 18, and Acts chapter 3, I think it's 25, he, he refers to all the prophets, and he's talking about Moses, Samuel, and all those who followed him foresaw the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. So I'm prone to think it's not just all kinds of prophets, or, you know, the, there were northern ones and there were southern ones, and... Various ones talked about this, but rather that it is indeed all of them foresaw the grace that was coming. All the Yahweh prophets, not the false dudes. So some guidelines, and what I want you to do, time is ticking and I feel it. Um, Open your Bibles to the book of Exodus. One of the elements I do, I haven't done it in this class, overviewing the book, we've touched on it a few times, but the passage that I cover in each of the 12 chapters is Exodus chapter 19, verses 4 through 6. And that's where I want to end today. Exodus 19, 4 through 6. So if you will, open up your Bible there. I've got it on your paper, but you may want to let your eyes wander um, up and down. And, but I want to consider this passage with respect to application. Not exegesis, but practical theology. And probably what I'm about to do is extreme overkill, okay? But I'm going to try to unpack for you um, the different types of categories that you could think about with respect to application. I mean, application, I mean, we're reading our Bibles and we just want it to matter for us. And yet this is an old, even this part of the Bible is, is really old. And, and we want to understand it faithfully and rightly. And so I'm, I would never expect you to be thinking about all that I'm about to share in one devotional time. You might start through the list and all of a sudden God meets you and you're like, I've got something. But... There's many more questions that could be asked. And within that sphere, you can begin to consider, so what? So why does this text matter for me? Did God really give this text for me? And we've just seen all Scripture is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. All Scripture is about Jesus, but not all in the same way. So how do we think about it? And... Here's our text. You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings, O Israel, and brought you to myself. In Exodus chapter 4, Moses is anticipating this event. When they would leave Egypt and arrive at the mountain in order to worship the living God. But ultimately, the goal was to get them to the promised land. And now God is on the flip side of that. After all the plagues and God says you've seen how I brought you to myself I've saved you I've delivered you 
And now and only now, after that great salvation, have I brought you to Mount Sinai to give you a law. Now, therefore, because I've saved you in such a great way, I'm calling you to follow me in a great manner. Now, therefore, if you'll indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be to me a treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Which covenant? That's the question, okay? What covenant are they supposed to keep? Well, that is a very important exegetical question. And what's at stake is, in my mind, so there's some people that say, oh, look, in Exodus chapter 2 and in Exodus chapter 6, the covenant that God made with Abraham, with Isaac, and Jacob is mentioned. No other covenant is mentioned up to this point in the book. So when it says, keep my covenant, you have to assume he's talking about the Abrahamic covenant. But then others will say, but wait, this is in Exodus 19. I mean, he's about ready to give the ten words. And those ten words are called the ten words of the covenant. And they're going to be put into the Ark of the Covenant. And chapters 21 through 24 are about the book of the covenant. That is the Mosaic covenant that Israel will break and that will bring great judgment on them. So others will say it's foreshadowing that. And I say yes. Because the Abrahamic covenant in Genesis is disclosed to come to us in two stages. The first stage, Abraham will be the father of one nation in the land. And that's why a book like Deuteronomy or a book like Exodus sets up the Mosaic Covenant as a fulfillment of the Abrahamic promises that he would be a father of one nation in the land. But the covenant of Abraham moves beyond that to a day when he would be a father of a multitude of nations through his representative son, offspring, royal, single male descendant, who would control enemy gates and through him all the the blessings of God would overcome the curse and reach the ends of the globe. That's the new covenant. So when I read this text, I'm seeing stage one fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant promises that is the Mosaic covenant. And that's significant because when it comes to application, one of the key elements that we start with is what did it originally mean? Because our own application today should be controlled, limited by its original application. And the fact that it addressed a covenant people means that these words weren't given to Assyria or to Babylon. They weren't given to Egypt. They were given to the specific people of God that he had just redeemed out of the land. So I've got a series of questions, steps, and it starts with, What was the original application? And then we begin to build the bridge for practical theology, considering what does it tell us about God? We can always find application for our souls by understanding how big our God is in this text, what he's doing, how he's described. And then, next step is, based on what we read in the New Testament, 
what do we know about Jesus and how his work might influence our application of a text that was given to help capture what the Old Covenant was about? So if, in light of the great redemption, if indeed you'll obey my voice, keep my covenant, then you'll be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. It's going to be happening. We're in you as a nation, a covenant people placed in the middle of the earth will all of a sudden be the agents through which my glories will be mediated and my holiness will be displayed to the entire world. So, we established the original revealed application. And this, I already know right up front, this is going to feel huge. Like you're probably, where are you? At the bottom of page one. Are you even there yet? Okay, top of page two, and I've got a lot of stuff here. But you can just take it home and ponder it. So let me just consider. Number one establishing the original application. When Moses, when it came out of his mouth, how did it matter for his audience? And I've got a a series of different areas that we can be considering. First of all, identify who the audience was. The kinds of questions that we're asking are things like, does the passage target individuals or groups? When it comes to application, that that can matter. Do I just appropriate this for me and my little study, or is this somehow related from the get-go to the community? Due to time, I'm just going to summarize. What do we know? We know that a mixed community, mostly of ethnic Israelites, but also of some Egyptians, left Egypt together. We know that they've been grumbling for weeks. We know that they believed Yahweh and they believed Moses, the last verse of chapter 14. And yet, whether the inside of their hearts is actually transformed, we don't know. So you have a mixture of leaders and laity made up from young children all the way up to the aged who have just experienced a great redemption. They were saved from the clutches of the Pharaoh. They were saved from the angel of death when they put the blood over their doorposts. And yet, we're going to find out that most of them are still unregenerate and we will not see them in heaven. Identifying the audience of the application. Next, we consider the external life issues of the application. Now, we've covered some of the, a little bit of this. Types of questions that we ask. What aspects of life is the passage most concerned with? What do we encounter that is similar to or at least closely related to what the passage deals with. So here we're considering our own environment and wondering if there's anything parallel with what we're seeing in the passage, anything analogous to what Israel was experiencing. Is the application directed more toward matters 
um, matters that are more interpersonal in nature? Is this a relational text? Is the concern social, economic, religious, spiritual, familial, financial? Or is it something else? Because we want our present-day application to be controlled by the original application. And finally, does the passage relate directly to the people's relationship with God? Now, what's clear in this text is that this is principally about the people's relationship with God. He's the one who's redeemed them, and now he's the one who is speaking to them, establishing a covenant relationship with them, and calling them to be loyal to him in the midst of the entire world. So covenant is at the core of this passage. For a primary external life issue, we're thinking covenant. Now, in the midst of this covenant, though, are an entire uh, web of social and economic and religious and spiritual and familial and financial issues. And so this is a very broad text, perhaps the broadest of all statements in simple form on the Old Covenant that we have in the Old Testament. So you've got redemption, that is a key life issue in this text, and then the covenant, all for the sake of this radical, beautiful calling that has been given to them of putting on display the holiness of God, mediating the presence of God for the world. Next, we clarify the nature of the application. What are we asking here? Does the passage inform the mind, supplying faith, or direct the will, giving instruction? Is this more about believing or doing? Is it more about the heart or the hands? Is it more indicative or imperative? So we want to get down inside of this passage. What do we see? We see right up front that they've experienced something that should engender their faith in God. He has intruded into space and time into their lives by this great redemption Pillar of cloud by day, pillar of fire by night, destroying, decimating the entire Egyptian army. So these things should awaken faith. And with that, the life or obedience that's supposed to flow from it. So verse 5 is principally focused on the area of doing. Doing. If you will indeed hear my, hear or obey my voice and keep my covenant. That's what's at stake in this text in verse 5. But I want you to notice something. That we come to verse 6 and it's promise. Then you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. This promise is by nature motivation. And what you hope for tomorrow will change who you are today. If they would but believe that God could use them in this way, it's going to impact, motivate them, transform their present ethic. So what I would say is this text is less about informing, more about directing, and yet it's also calling them to a life of faith in God's promise, faith in God's faithfulness, so that they could become 
what God's calling them to be through this radical life of surrender. Next, we determine the time focus of the application. So does the passage call for present faith and action, or is it focused principally on future faith and action? Does it look back to something in the past or ahead to something in the future? As we consider Exodus 19, 4 through 6, we see that they've experienced something in the past, but now they're in the present looking toward the day when they will be entering into the promised land, and this is calling them to a certain type of life. They're looking toward a day when they will be living in the midst of all the nations, and all those nations will be looking in on them, and it's Israel's obedience to the covenant that will enable them to be this entire kingdom of priests. Not just a kingdom having priests, but a kingdom of priests through whom the world will encounter God. So it's principally looking toward the future, and yet, with respect to With respect to us, this is Old Covenant regulation that has now been superseded by a New Covenant. We're not part of this covenant. So what we have here is Israel being called to something very specific with respect to the Old Covenant. And yet we're part of a different legislation. So it's, it's present and future for Israel, but past for us. And yet... As we're going to see, we have, we have 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, wherein God's going to declare to the church, you are a royal priesthood, a holy nation, in order that you might put on display the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. So what was responsibility for Israel is going to still be responsibility for the church. But what was declared as you ought to do it, for the church it's declared you are. You are this already in light of what Christ has done. Time focus of application. Next we fix the limits of the application. The types of questions we're asking here is are, is the passage primary or does it function more as support or background? Is the passage part of a larger passage that suggests a clearer application than your passage actually does on its own? Does the passage call for a response that could be misunderstood or taken too far? In what ways does the passage apply? So, You can have texts that are more expressions of other texts. But here in Exodus 19, as I already said, we have perhaps the most fundamental synthesis statement of what the Old Covenant was calling for. It doesn't give us specific commands. It doesn't say, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart. It doesn't say, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. It doesn't say, if you build a parapet, then act this way. Or let the tassels on your garments 
extend in this way. It doesn't go into that. It's not expanding on the covenant. It's simply synthesizing the covenant. So what we would say is this passage is a primary text. And because of that, because it's so primary, rather than a secondary application, we can expect that it's going to have more lasting impact for us through Christ. Because we're dealing more centrally with If you have a relationship with God, what does God call for and what will be the results? What's the nature of living for God in a radical way? There's going to be a witness, a witness to the world. And that's going to change whether you're part of the old covenant or part of the new. So how would I summarize the key aspects of Exodus 19, 4 through 6? And I'll kind of walk through each verse with respect to application. Number one, the text supplies a synthesis of the Old Covenant by addressing the nation of Israel's redemption and life calling in relation to the whole world. It explicitly informs, but also implicitly directs, calling for action and motivating this call by the promise of global impact. And finally, the words target every member of the community and address surrender to Yahweh that impacts every facet of life in every present and future generation. Now, having established the original application, we now move to determining the lasting theological significance of the passage for us today. And there's three different elements that I think we should be thinking about. Number one, clarify what the passage tells us about God and his ways. This is one of the beautiful realities that we can enter into the initial three-fourths of our Bible and always meet God, the God who is unchanging, the same yesterday, today, and forever. So, A key way that we can gain application in our own Bible study, in our own devotions, or as we seek to help others, is simply say, what does this passage tell us about God? Because he doesn't change. How he engages certain people in certain times can change, but his character, his action does not. So specifically, what we're considering are um, aspects about God and his ways. With respect to God, questions about, does the text tell me about his character, his desires, what he values, what he concerns, what his standards are? These are the elements about God. How about God's ways, his actions, or his purposes in redemption? So, with respect to Exodus 19, 4 through 6, what do we see? We see that Yahweh is the one who delivers in order to create a people who can display his excellencies. He's a delivering God. He's a saving God. He has that kind of power to overcome the biggest empire on the planet for the sake of his name. And he's creating a people to put him on display. He's a warrior in 19.4 who commands, establishes covenants, and treasures some people more than others, 19.5. And finally, in 19.6, he's a God who motivates through promises. And he's a God who desires his people to mediate and display his greatness in the world. 
So what does the passage tell us about God and his ways? Second question, where we're really narrowing in and considering our application, what does the passage, or specifically, assess how Christ's fulfillment of the Old Testament impacts our application of the passage? There's a whole host of questions that we're asking here. Does the passage speak directly to Old Covenant structures that get transformed in the New Covenant? How has the, past, how has the progress of salvation history influenced how we hear or may apply this text? How does the passage anticipate Jesus' life and work, the church age, or the consummation? Does the text express time-bound or culturally-bound elements that can no longer relate to us on this side of the cross? Does the New Testament quote or allude to this particular passage in a way that would help us understand its lasting significance for Christians? So, with respect to Christ's fulfillment, I have a host of observations. Number one, the exodus from Egypt is a picture or type that anticipates a greater, more universal second exodus from sin that Jesus himself embodies. Consider how Isaiah, in Isaiah chapter 11, uses the imagery of the Exodus. In that day, the root of Jesse, whom we know of as Jesus the King, in that day when he shows up, the very one who will stand as a signal for the peoples, of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. In that day, the Lord will extend his hand yet a second time. First time with Israel coming out of Egypt, a second time to recover the remnant that remains of his people from Assyria, Egypt, Pathros, Cush, Elam, Shinar, Hamat, and from the coastlands of the sea. He'll raise up for them a signal, that's Jesus, for the nations, and will assemble the banished of Israel and gather the dispersed of Judah from the corners, four corners of the earth. And there will be a highway from Assyria for the remnant that remains of his people, as there was for Israel when they came up from the land of Egypt. Now, as we saw when we were in the book of Isaiah, he uses the imagery of the Exodus to talk about the great eschatological transformation that God will bring in reconciling a multi-ethnic people for himself. Luke chapter 9, 30 and 31 says, two men were talking with Jesus, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his exodus, ESV, his departure. It's the only time that word exodus shows up in the New Testament, and what it suggests to me, is that Jesus is heading to Jerusalem to accomplish a great exodus, an exodus of an enslaved people, those who were enslaved to the power of the devil, to bring them out. This is the imagery of the exodus as it works its way out in redemptive history. Our passage addresses a great salvation, and Jesus, by analogy, or what we would call typology, has brought about a greater exodus fulfillment, overcoming even a greater enemy. 
Christ fulfilled the charge of this text. Not only did he fulfill what the Exodus pointed to, he fulfills the actual charge of this text as the perfect royal priest bringing us to God and empowering us to serve him. So, As one trespass of Adam led to condemnation for all men, it's one act of righteousness that leads to justification of life for all men. As by one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the obedience of one man many will be made righteous. Israel was called to obey, but the majority failed to obey. Jesus represents the people and obeys. And therefore, he becomes the great high priest, the great king priest. Hebrews chapter 4, We don't have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. He became sin for our sake the very one who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus embodies the purpose of the nation. He fulfills it and secures and becomes what Israel was called to be. Christ empowers us now to magnify God as he is. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to the next. We are now uh, beginning to live out ourselves as royal priests because of our identification with Jesus. You are, as Peter says, a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Just thinking about applying Exodus 19, 4 through 6, we've walked through the guidelines. The very last one is simply to summarize the lasting significance of the passage for today. Our time is up. It's beyond up. So I just praise the Lord for you. I praise the Lord for this opportunity that he has given me these 13 years to serve as your shepherd. And I am trusting that he who began his good work in you is going to be faithful to complete it. I love you dearly. And I pray that you would, I'll just pray now, O Lord, Watch over this people. Be near them and empower them to be, for you, a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for your own possession. You will never leave them or forsake them in order that they, each of them, may proclaim your excellencies. You who are the beautiful God, the holy God, the supreme sovereign over all things, and our Savior who will return. Oh, we long for that day. You who called us out of darkness into your marvelous light, let this people praise you, O God. Let this people praise you. For your glory, I pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from the ministry of Dr. Jason DeRoshi. 
professor of Old Testament and Biblical Theology at Bethlehem College and Seminary in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without written permission from Jason Duroshi. For more information on Bethlehem College and Seminary, we invite you to visit online at www.bcsmn.edu. For more information on Dr. Duroshi, visit online at www.jasonderoshi.com. Proclaiming the kingdom and treasuring a God who reigns, saves, and satisfies through covenant for his glory in Christ.